0: wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know what to say about the election last night. It was frightening. That was Bruce Springsteen at Arizona State University about the election in 1980. Springsteen was responding, as many people were, to the election of a person who had radically different and more conservative ideas than the mainstream of American politics, generally speaking, even the mainstream of his own party. Who in little quips had attacked welfare queens and people living off government handouts who had attacked government. Washington is the problem, not the solution, was his refrain. People had great fear. At the same time, the country was suffering from high inflation and a depression that would continue into his term. Also, Reagan was a movie actor, and there was definitely a feeling at the time that maybe he wasn't serious and we'd enter this new time of instead of electing serious people, previous president had been a naval nuclear engineer, we'd be electing more television people and TV actors, entertainers. For his part, Springsteen would go on to write a really dark album called Nebraska. One of murder, economic depression, and desperation. Hitting a chord just as the country was entering one recession and going even to a greater one in 1982. Not only did Springsteen write lyrics that were sad on their face, you were just reading them on a paper. The opening song of Nebraska is about a murderer going on a rampage. But he also used a deliberately lo-fi process to make the sound dark. He ditched his former E Street band for this album and just used one engineer to do a home recording process that you might use on a demo tape. The tape that he recorded in Nebraska on was purchased at a drugstore. And the mix was run through a cheap boombox that had actually fallen into the water in a river near his house, stopped working, and then after hitting it, it started working again. When the thing was finally processed and brought to the studio, the engineers had trouble even getting it to be able to record with the process that they had in 1981, to get to even record onto the disc sound fidelity of that demo cassette was so bad. Yeah, Nebraska's one of those fans' albums, and as I'm a fan, it's one of my favorites. It certainly did not do well in terms of record sales as compared to his other albums, but it's come to become a fan favorite. Thomas Morello, who would go on to found Rage Against the Machine, said he didn't know that music could be made like that. Indeed, the song Atlantic City, a song about gambling, crime, desperation, is the closest to a single to come, to come from that album. I'm playing it here. I want to thank you for subscribing to the premium cast. And one of the things that I've promised that you'll get extra episodes. This is one of them. I talked a bit about post-election on the standard cast. And so I wanted to add to that as we have some more information and I have some more thoughts. You know, I did this in 2008. 2008 after the election was the attention was so occupied that you had the first African-American president of the United States that so many other things were forgotten. So I issued a cast called the kind of like flora and fauna of the 2008 election because there were so many other things that were happening. And one of the things was that for the first time, you had people on both tickets that were from Alaska and Hawaii. First time ever that those two states were represented, and they were both represented in the 2008 election. For the first time ever, a state split its electoral votes due to congressional district allocation. And that's something that's happened again. We'll talk about it. So I figured it would be a good opportunity just to talk a little bit more about the election and what's coming next and some of the things that to talk about what people are talking about uh, with a little bit of historical context. First of all, Hillary Clinton's popular vote total has enlarged since I recorded the post-election cast. It's looking like a million and a half votes, uh, according to AP, and it might even go up. I think it speaks to mandate. I really does do. Um, I think that a good counter to any kind of program um, that the administration's putting out is that you don't have a mandate, you didn't get the popular vote. I think it speaks to the fact that they'll probably be at least a starting, very low presidential approval rating for this president. Now, I'll get into that more. It doesn't mean that people should be getting their hopes up if you're anti-Trump, because there's many ways to reverse that, and presidents in history have. Bill Clinton probably being the most notorious of those. It's only as important as a party makes of it. So if you want to use that popular vote argument, you've got to be out there constantly making the case as a party. If you sit back, I think, you know, basically the the presidency gives a person a pulpit, and you're going to have that pulpit whether you got there by electoral college or not. Let's look at the four times now that there was an electoral college um, loser who won the popular vote, okay? So you have Samuel Tilden in 1876, you have Grover Cleveland in 1888, Al Gore in 2000, Hillary Clinton in 2016. Hillary Clinton's is the largest popular vote ever because Tilden's was just a little over 240,000, Cleveland's was 91,000, Gore's was 543,000, and Clinton's looks like at least 1.5 million. So it's the largest popular vote win without an electoral college win ever. Some of it comes from a, a unique set of advantages and disadvantages. I mean, Hillary Clinton won the nation's largest state sixty-two to thirty-two. She wins California sixty-two to thirty-two percent. Four million vote lead in California. But she loses Wisconsin by twenty nine thousand votes, Michigan by looks like ten thousand, Ohio by four hundred thousand. That was a substantial loss. And Pennsylvania by 68,000 votes to Trump. She gets less in most of these states, in, in all of those states, than President Obama did in 2012. And so if she could have just held more of those votes, would have had those states. But she does better in states that the GOP wins and usually gets their big votes from. You know, you look at Texas. She's only losing that by a million votes. And that state could be changing down the line. It's probably going to take some time. But Hillary Clinton, the great evil person is the way it was portrayed in the media and everything. gets 46% of Texas. So she's went running closer there. She's running real close in Arizona. I mean, maybe a few more weeks and a little bit more campaign effort and Arizona could have toppled. No problem in Nevada. So you steal the new states that are shaping up. The real issue I see is Florida. She just could not put that into her coalition. Florida and Pennsylvania seem to be the real problems of this election. She just could not put that into her coalition. Uh, Loses Florida by 100,000 votes. So all the talk about the Rust Belt, and obviously that was the key backbone of Donald Trump's win, this very narrow win in these Rust Belt states. The fact that Hillary Clinton couldn't win Florida is a big part of the electoral loss. You didn't need it. You could have lost Ohio and Florida, those two vaunted swing states, and still have held the White House if you just held on to the the traditional blue states, which did not happen. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania come home in a sense. Uh, Wisconsin is an original Republican state; it, the party was founded there in eighteen fifty four. Since the throughout the Civil War times and thereafter, it had been Republican. You know, changes around the time of the New Deal briefly. Same with Pennsylvania reliable Republican state, very strong Republican machine in that state throughout the Civil War period, and thereafter votes for Herbert Hoover in 1932, and then enters the Democratic fold, then becomes more of a back and forth. For the first time in history now, Maine split its votes for the first time since it allocated its electoral votes by congressional district in 1972. Trump won the Maine 2nd District. It's a large, rural district. It's very forested. It contains Bangor, which features a Paul Bunyan statue. <laughs> and uh, lumberjacking and paper pulp are still big industries in this area. The city of Bangor goes for Hillary Clinton, but the rest of the 2nd District went for Donald Trump. And so he gets one electoral vote from that. Trump wins the second district 51% to 41%, which means Gary Johnson had a pretty high vote there, most likely. In the state of Maine total, Johnson has 5%, which is much higher than his national total of 3.5%. So you can see that independent streak. The Prediction Professor made an appearance in this election. Alan Lichtman of American University. It's interesting because I've been following Lichtman for probably 20 years and being on various boards, you know, back when the time when these were like Internet discussion boards and then the first blogs, weblogs, where you'd have comments under an article. And when they all appeared, I've been arguing in various forms about Alan Lichtman's system for 20 years. It's called the keys to the presidency. He has 13 keys and the incumbent can only lose five of those keys. If you lose six or more, then you lose the white house. So he predicted a Trump victory, or at least that it was, there are more evidence of a Trump victory than not. His key system actually did predict a Hillary victory, but narrowly because, the third-party candidate did not get, you know, 5% of the vote, which is one of his standards. Gary Johnson got about 3.4. Uh, Jill Stein got 1%. But he's getting a lot of attention now. I did point out on one of the Lickman sites that in 2000, he said, his system could only predict a popular vote, so he was correct in picking Gore. And now... He's taking credit or at least being passive about all the credit awarded to him by the media about predicting a Trump victory. (laughs) So I guess the media attention's got to him a little bit. I have pointed that out, and I have gotten a variety of responses from Lichtman fans, and there are a lot of them. It doesn't matter, really, to me. The publicity, the media attention, calling someone the prediction professor and the like— That's not useful. What I do think his system is useful for is rendering visible certain things that are common in the decisions of American voters in electing presidents since 1860, whether he gets off by a key and makes a prediction or not. You know, you see when the odds are stacked up against an incumbent, when you look at at his system, his system is based on earthquake prediction and it's the 13 keys. He's applied them retroactively to elections since 1860 and looked at win or losses in the popular vote. He's been personally predicting based on this model, since 1984 and he's quote never been wrong even though i i I see some shaky moments in interpreting some of his keys he had a lot of trouble in 1992 um he called it wrong or right depending on his view in 2000 and wrong or right in, in 2016 now who is the biggest popular vote winner but white house loser of all time um it's still gonna fall to samuel tilden And that's because there was such a small electorate, so losing by 243,000 votes was the equivalent of something like three to four million in today's terms. I also want to discuss Nate Silver and polls because there was a, a lot of discussion of that and there are a lot of people defending Nate Silver for his predictions. And of course, you can't completely, you know, go after him. I mean, he he makes a prediction based on data and polls that are not conducted by him. He uses the data available to him and compiles it in a way, and we get it. He had a a Twitter post that used this example. Okay, so a predictor says 30% chance of an earthquake. People say that's too high a percentage chance. That's ridiculous. Then there's an earthquake. Now people say you said there was a seventy percent chance that there wouldn't be an earthquake. It's effective but also a little convenient um it, it I don't have an issue so much with the way Nate Selver does the the business that he does i and I think it's the problems more with us and the media than Nate Silver. But I do hold him, if you will, a little responsible for the framing. I think the way that you you have a message is very important. And setting up the frame of this percentage chance of winning the election and carrying it throughout the election, I think, does set up an expectation. And I do think he gets some deserved blame then for making more out of the data than was really there. It is very true that if you have a 70% chance of winning the election, it means a 30% chance you don't. One of the things that he could have done, a um, 30% chance you don't, I don't think, though, in the framing, most people are going to focus on that. If you tell somebody there's a 70% chance of something, you're in effect predicting you know, that that's very likely to happen. And, you know, it's it's you're responsible for the framing and and the framing of polls this way is very bad. If you wanted to say the message that he claims that he warned people of that there was this, you could have said this. It might have been very effective. Uh, Chance of Trump winning. Thirty percent and maybe with a line that shows how long it is versus my prediction for Romney, 9% and how short it is. That would have indicated that there was a much greater chance of Trump being elected by his models than he was showing for Romney. So what's going to happen here, you know? Who's going to win out? The kind of Lichtman-based models of correlated events in history and applying it to the current election, or is it going to be the polls? I suggest neither. I think you do have to look at history. I think it's very important. I also think polls can fool you. I always point to that 1988 election where if you were looking at polls, the Democrats were indicated to win all through the spring and summer of 1988 until Dukakis was nominated and various attack ads came out. And then his chances slipped to where there was no chance of him being elected. So I think you got to look at Some other factors, like is the economy good? Is the administration succeeding on the world stage? These are important factors. Just looking at polls and seeing who's more popular, you know, it doesn't give you enough information. I I suggest a combo. You're going to look at some of these factors, and you're also going to look at polls, particularly the polls right before the election, and more on a state and district level. And that'll tell you what's going on. So what happens now with a Trump presidency? Well he's gonna start making his cabinet. There's an interesting thing that's going to occur, and I think it gets into that Lichtman analysis of the Obama presidency that one of Lichtman's point is, is points is that one of Lichtman's points is that a presidency must stay active, they must have policy change, and they must have foreign policy successes in addition and not just kind of like roll with the economy. And I think one could fairly criticize the Obama administration for the second term and not really doing it. Now, it was made impossible by the fact they didn't have the House or the Senate. Bitter opposition in the Senate and House. So, therefore, so much of what President Obama has achieved is through executive actions, either administrative decisions by administrative bodies, making rules, or executive orders from the president himself. So there are some things that literally Donald Trump could change overnight. Uh, One is the status of undocumented immigrants to the country. Right now there's a great number, including children that are protected um, by executive order that could be reversed actions to enforce deportation could be enacted by executive order. Now, The funds needed to carry it out might have to go to Congress. Uh, Punishments aimed at sanctuary cities. Uh, In other words, certain cities that tolerate um, and, and do not cooperate with federal immigration authorities could be subject to decreases in their federal funding for those cities. Uh, that Some of that could be done by executive action or by a, a friendly Congress that at this point might pass legislation like that. Denying travel visas to countries that do not accept deportees, because this is a big uh, holdup. If you're going to deport people, the countries have to take it. And certain countries, for instance, Haiti, will not take U.S. deportees, particularly if they have criminal records, which is where the Trump administration is saying they're starting. Well... Trump administration says we will not um, issue travel visas then to countries that do not accept deportees. That could be done by executive order or federal agency rules making. Loosen up housing rules, some more positive one perhaps, to expand mortgage credit. Sanctions against Cuba, having been eased, were eased by executive order to evade any opposition in Congress. It's not clear. Trump hasn't really stated his position on that, but he could overturn it. Executive Order 13672, which prohibits federal contractors from discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender. This is an executive order and could be reversed by Trump. The Iran deal and some of the sanctions applied there could perhaps be reversed by executive order. A notable one would be changes to welfare reform that were made by executive order. In 1996, President Clinton signed welfare reform. It's also known as Temporary Assistance to Needy Families okay, TANF, that replaced aid to dependent children. And even in the name, you sense a different direction of where people are going. They want it to be temporary. And TANF means you don't get federal welfare dollars unless you're working. You have to work 20 to 30 hours. And there are certain activities that are allowed to replace work, but there aren't many. And it's uh, generally emphasizing that you have to do 20 to 30 hours of at least public work, private work, community service, child care for someone else who's doing community service, job training paid for by the federal government, vocational job training, but limited, education or GED, but very limited. In other words, you can go for your education or GED, but you can't use that for your whole 30 hours. You can use it for 10 of the 30 hours, which gives you your 20 to 30 hours. So there's a lot of... It's a, TANF is a very restrictive program. It's not aimed at spending more money. In fact, the funding for TANF has not really increased over the years. We're at about the same level as we were in 1996. The Obama administration, by executive order, allowed states, by their choice, to waive some of these work restrictions. That could be overturned by a President Trump. So there's a lot of actions that he could simply take really on the first day of office if he wants to. We're going to see what happens. In other administrations, you know, change has not been that quick and policies have needed to be
1: discussed more. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Finally,
0: some thoughts about the the future. You're already getting predictions of what's going to happen in 2020. And obviously, it's way too early. One of the things that I heard a lot in 2000 is, whoever wins, loses. Whoever wins, loses. Meaning that uh, if Bush was taking the White House in 2000, well, there's going to be a huge recession. And you certainly saw that coming because the dot-com bubble at that point was dying. And it showed no sign of rebounding. So in 2000 and 2001, you certainly saw an economic recession. But look at what happened. Events of 9-11 caused a rally around the flag effect. The 2002 midterms actually go for the president, which is rare. Usually it goes against the president's party. And he wins a victory, albeit a narrow victory, in 2004 with the country at war. And it made it very difficult to criticize the commander-in-chief during any kind of war action. I mean, Kerry certainly was a candidate who, being a vet, had a chance of doing it and did it in some cases successfully, but it was less effective and the Iraq War hadn't reached a level of low popularity that it would just in the next year. You know, if that election were held in 2005, Kerry wins it, in my opinion, anyway. So we make a lot of predictions this early out about what's going to happen with the president. It's, and, and also, it's, it's not just because we want to be little Nate Silvers and figure out what's going on in the election. People like the Democratic Party, the various third parties, activists, lobbying groups, they want to know what they should be doing. If you're in opposition, what action should you be taking? So they're right now considering their actions, and you see, like, various moves. Maybe we should put someone from the Rust Belt in charge. Um, Maybe we should have one of the Bernie Sanders team kind of take over the Democratic Party. The Hillary Clinton side didn't get it done, so let's see what the Bernie Sanders side can do. And I don't really have much to weigh in on except to say it is generally so little, unfortunately, Presidential elections are so little about what the opposition party does. They should do what they do well, but it's, they could do everything right and lose, I guess is the best way to say it. It's all about President Trump, the GOP Congress, what they do, both on the domestic stage and on the world stage. His approval rating throughout, what specific policy changes are achieved, and what successes or failures on the world stage happen. And my favorite quote is from the former Prime Minister of Britain, Harold Wilson, who said, Events, my dear man, events. Sometimes it is just the luck of the draw, and it's the events that you get hit with when you're sitting in the White House that are going to determine how things work out. 2020 is going to be entirely about his presidency and how it's perceived by the American people. The only thing Democrats do can do, and I believe the GOP did this successfully during the Obama administration, to turn what was a relatively popular president and you know, 58% approval ratings to a loss for his party in the presidential election is to obstruct. That's difficult, too, I think, particularly for the Democratic Party because it is a pro-government party. It's much more difficult to stop government from happening. And there's a much larger group of constituents that depends on funds. So that can always be held hostage. But certainly, obstruction, even though it's a mean business, is, is uh, on paper at least, uh, a way to succeed from, for your party. But sometimes you can do nothing at all. And if the president fails, uh, you're probably going to win that election. The bad news for anyone looking for Defeating a President Trump in 2020 is that incumbent presidents win three fourths of the time. When they lose, it's usually a recession, which means you can get the election, but it's a very bad time for everybody, and that's not good news. With Donald Trump, you have a couple of original factors here: the oldest president ever to take office, by far. Not necessarily well liked in the party. I mean, they like him right now because he got him Wisconsin and Pennsylvania right, but. Not necessarily well-liked and not trusted by everyone in the party. Um, Skeptical relations with Congress. I mean, they're they're covering it up right now, but skeptical relations with Congress. It could be that he doesn't run in 2020, or it's Pence, or it's someone else. Because he resigned, is impeached, is simply beaten for nomination, which... I don't think there's been a GOP president since Ford, obviously, that I would say would be more likely to engender a primary challenge than this one. And I think any way it goes, there'll be some kind of a primary challenge. On the other hand, there's one factor that you got going for him that that I don't think Democrats didn't have for the past six years, and that's control of the White House and Congress. So you have the ability to make things happen in Washington in a way that hasn't happened before. That could create a perception of accomplishment, which strongly favors the person in office. It remains to be seen what will be done, whether there'll be baby steps that, you know, you really need to take bigger chances. If he goes with baby steps, kind of the Clintonian moves, we'll, we'll see. But he has the equipment there conceivably to get something done, and that hasn't been present for six years, Uh, even though I don't always buy all of the change arguments, you know, especially when part of change is instituting an infrastructure stimulus that would have been agreed on by the Democratic president anyway, but you're just for political reasons deciding to go along with it now, you know. Realistically speaking, Changes change. Is change and, and if you're able to control events in Washington, you're in a much better shape than that kind of defensive presidency that has been run for the past six years. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. Really appreciate it. It's been a big help.